You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to Romans chapter 11. It's been a while since we've been in, in Romans. But we'll pick up where we left off. And that is in chapter 11, starting in verse 16. And we're going to deal with verses 16 through 24 today. As we read, let's just back up to 11, get some context. Let's stand together as we honor the reading of Scripture today. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, as so to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch Then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches." But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And then, and and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to a portion of Scripture that that has gotten all sorts of of wild interpretations and has been tremendously difficult for some to to grasp and and deal with and and to understand what he's 
what's been talking about here. And Lord, we pray that as we come to this great illustration in Scripture this morning, we ask that you make this clear in our mind. Give us clarity. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, we pray that that as we read this and reflect on it together, we pray that it would, it would just point to, to Jesus, that the gospel would be made and that we would recognize that there is one people of God. And it's those people that place their faith and trust in you for salvation. Because Christ is, as we talked about in Sunday school, above all things, is preeminent. And we pray that this text points to him as preeminent this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let's just start the, the message this morning talking about illustrations. Illustrations are good. They're, they're needed. There's a lot of illustrations in Scripture. The text we just read is, is one of them. But we need to ask ourselves, what is the point of an illustration? The purpose of an illustration is to bring clarity. Teacher will be teaching on a, a subject, and then he'll illustrate it. I was listening to, to Jeremy teaching in Sunday school a little bit this morning, and he illustrated several things using Elijah. And it worked well. And that's what an illustration is supposed to do. It is supposed to take the, the point the teacher is, is making and make it clear. It's supposed to give somebody that, that aha moment. After you, you hear the teaching and then it's illustrated, we say, ah, that, that really makes sense. We come away from the, the illustration with a, a better understanding of the teaching. Now apply this to sermons that you've heard. If illustrations are to leave you with a better understanding of the teaching of the scriptures, how many times have we come away from a, a sermon and asked somebody, or somebody else is somebody else, somebody that goes to a different church, we weren't there, we say, How was the, the sermon this morning? And they say, It, it was good. And you say, Well, it was about. And, and they remembered an illustration, but not what it was meant to illustrate. We say something like, the sermon was good. The pastor talked about two dogs that were in a fight. The owners of the dogs fed one dog, didn't feed the other dog. The stronger dog took out the, the, the other one. I mean, it was, just a, it was a great story. You, you would have had to hear, hear it. And then somebody asked, well, what was the point of the story? I mean, why did, why did the pastor tell the story of, of two dogs that were in a fight? You know, I, I don't remember. I just remember that the story was good because it was so entertaining. You see, in this case, the pastor tried to, to illustrate something with a story of two dogs that were in a fight. He did so in such an interesting way that compelled the people to, to get the story, but it was at the expense of what was supposed to be illustrated. For some, a, a good sermon has lots of illustrations. And what they mean by that is has a lot of good entertaining stories. 
and we need to make a distinction. A sermon can have interesting stories, and those stories may or may not be illustrations. An illustration was meant to clarify what was being taught, and that's why illustrations are so difficult. You want something to, that, will, that will stick in one's memory, but you don't want them to remember the illustration at an expense of what it was meant to clarify. I hope that makes sense. Just think of our, our broader worship for a moment. The, the broader worship in the, the evangelical church and in our day and age, right? All the, the video gimmicks, the, the, the loud noise, the fog machines, all of these things, these, these gimmicks, the light shows and all of that that are, that are meant intended to enhance our worship, but are actually detracting from it. And illustrations do that as well. What was put in there meant to enhance the message, sometimes they actually detract from it, don't they? Illustrations are to be, as what Charles Spurgeon says, windows that let light in. That is a good illustration of an illustration. A covered window does not let light in, and what is needed is for somebody to remove that covering, and that's what an illustration does. It removes the covering so one that can see the teaching clearly. The light fully comes in. Having said this, we often think of illustrations. We think of, in Scripture, we think of parables, parable that came to my mind after I wrote this was Matthew 13, parable of the sower. And Jesus describes this to so many people. All these listeners are hearing Jesus talk about the four kinds of soil and the results of the farmer sowing and the disciples and everybody else. I mean, they didn't get it. And they had to ask later what the story meant why Jesus was speaking in parables. Why are you speaking in parables, Jesus? Just say it. Jesus said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, disciples, but not them. That's why I spoke in parables. So in this instance, it seems as though Jesus is, is letting in the light, but closing the window in, in some respect. And of course, one could say that the whole thing was an illustration that allowed the disciples to see what he was doing. But he did tell the illustration to the masses. No one got it. Later, he explained the parable and the disciples to the disciples, and he drew back the, the window covering, and the disciples have this aha moment they understand. But Jesus is intentionally being obscure when he told the, the parable. In our text this morning, it, it might seem like Paul is doing something similar, but he's not. Paul is, is not trying to, to close windows and then open them in a big aha moment. But when Paul introduces the illustration of the olive tree, with its rejected branches and newly grafted in branches, Paul is trying to be clear. He's trying to give an illustration. He's trying to give people a, an aha moment. You say, ah, oh, this is what he was teaching. This is what he's been teaching. This is what he's been saying. 
But the fact is, the illustration is pretty difficult for at least those of us who are reading this letter so far removed from, from Paul. Now, if you remember several weeks ago, we talked about the, the metaphor that Paul uses here, and we said, really, the, the meaning is, is fairly obvious. I remember saying that, and I even went back and, and looked at my notes, and I'm pretty sure I did say that. But we just read it, and you're probably thinking it's not that obvious. But I said that in this illustration, that it was pretty clear that the root is, is Abraham, the branches that have been broken off are subsequent generations of unbelieving Jews. The branches that have been grafted in are believing Gentiles. And I think the way that we've understood Romans 9 through 11 thus far, the meaning here is, is straightforward in this. But that isn't the case for everyone. One scholar pointed out as he was looking at these verses that there were over six different interpretations of them. And his interpretation was very, very wrong. He said that Gentiles were superior to Jews because they were broken off and Gentiles were grafted in. Now, I would suggest, and James Boyce makes this clear, that the difficulties that people have with these verses largely come from common errors when they look at parables or illustrations in Scripture. And, and the biggest mistake is that people press illustrations far beyond the clear and meaning of them. Sometimes people stress all the details in the illustration. They're, they're, not, really, they're not really the overall point. And instead then of drawing back the curtain and letting the light in, the meaning of the teaching then is lost in the details and they're adding more of a barrier to understanding the, the text, the illustration. Sometimes people take illustrations and in stories or, or parables so literally that they missed the point that was trying to be conveyed. I mean, just think of how this works in the life of, a, of, of, of just a sermon. It's two dogs in a fight. The owner feeds one dog, doesn't feed the other. The stronger dog, the dog that's fed, wins the battle. Simple illustration is what you, what you feed in your life becomes strong. Now, what if somebody came and, and took that illustration and said, okay, Pastor, told it, what do the dogs in your life represent? You know, and you just start pressing all the, the details of the, of the story beyond the simple point of it. And we could go on and on about how we misuse illustrations and parables and in Scripture, and I'm tempted to give more examples, but I, I won't for the sake of time. I'll just leave you to think about how we do that so next time you come across an illustration in Scripture, you can think through that. But for now, let's just look at the, the one before us. We have said that this illustration 
has led to, to several different interpretations. But let's see if we can think through a little bit here what has happened and then ask the question, what is the simple meaning here that Paul is, is trying to get across? Boyce points out that one of the major problematic ways that people uh, misuse this illustration of the olive tree has been when they interpret it as these branches are all concerning individuals or they're all nations. Let me see if I can explain that. What happens if we think about the branches that are broken off in terms of just individuals alone? We're tempted to do this because of individual branches. What does that introduce what that does when we do that, we start thinking in terms of individuals, is it introduces the thought that a person's salvation can be lost. They were once part of the tree. Now they're broken off. Now they're lost. I can't tell you how many times this passage gets used to support that. Of course, that allows us to warn against presumption, something that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But if one understands this to be speaking of individuals and their salvation being lost, then there's a problem because this runs then counter to the clear teaching of Romans chapter 8, which is very clear. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But not only that, but if one takes that view, it really destroys the whole purpose of Romans 9 through 11. The only reason that Paul had for writing these chapters is to answer the objection of God's word not failing in the midst of unbelieving Jews. We've said this over and over and over. God's word has not failed. Paul says, now let me prove it. Seven different lines of argument. But if one sees this as speaking of individuals, that a person can lose their salvation, then the purpose becomes, we cannot believe in eternal security if Israel is lost. And since that is the case, it calls God's faithfulness into question. That understanding doesn't make sense in the larger context of the illustration. In fact, it invalidates the entire argument of Paul in these chapters that God's word has not failed. Because if Israel can lose their salvation, then Paul can't prove his point. God's word has failed. What if the illustration has to do with nations? Complete nations, the nation of Israel, all of them. In that case, the nation of Israel is replaced by Gentile nations, right? The, the old nation has been broken off, Israel broken off, Israel's broken off, Gentile nation grafted in. We've talked about this before. It's called replacement theology. But one can see that the the nation of Israel was broken off, Gentiles engrafted in, but the problem with replacement theology is that the Gentile nation then begins to think of themselves as, as better or more supreme in, in some respect. 
When we say that there's a certain people of God, but that people rejected God, so God then chooses another group of people to be his people, that, in essence, makes the the second group supreme. But we have made it clear, if you remember, throughout this text so far, Paul's already taught this. There is one people of God, and these are the children of promise through faith, not national identity. Some might say, well, wait a minute. Didn't God choose the nation of Israel? Absolutely he did. But he didn't choose them all to salvation. If he did, his word would have failed, and the point of Romans 9 through 11 would be mute. God chose the nation of Israel as a vehicle to bring about the salvation of all who would believe. God used the nation of Israel in a special way in the story of redemption. So yes, they are chosen by God, and they are God's chosen people for that purpose. But when we speak of the children of promise, when we speak of who will inherit God's kingdom, those who will reign with King Jesus, those people that are his, these are the people that place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, Gentile, Jew, it doesn't matter. Those are his. All that to say, to suggest that Gentiles replaced the Jews in this text is dangerous because it elevates our status. And as we have seen, we're all the same. Paul dealt with this in the first chapters of Romans. Jews, Gentiles, were all alike under sin. Now, we can eliminate these difficulties here by recognizing that Paul is not speaking of individuals or nations alone specifically, but generalized masses of Jews and Gentiles. His point is that most Jews don't believe in the Messiah. Certainly not all of them. Paul has already pointed out that he himself is a Jew and that he believes. And besides that, he's not the only one. There's a remnant of believing Jews. He's talked about this. Just as clearly then is the fact that Paul is not speaking about every single Gentile being grafted in just because they're a Gentile but a large number of Gentiles that are coming to faith. And if you remember, the purpose for that is clear, that it would cultivate jealousy on the part of the Jews, that they would see the the riches of the gospel. It was for the Jews, too, on display in the Gentiles, that the Jews would, would long for that inheritance that belonged for them, and they would come to Christ as their Savior. So kind of summing this this up, The covenant of God with Israel is being fulfilled not with every Jewish person, but with those whom God has elected to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, and they are being saved. And in the end, there will be a time of of repentance and spiritual blessing for Israel nationally. We talked about this last time we were in this text. 
that there will be a time in which the hardness of Israel will be removed and we'll see a great number of Jews come to faith. Like Paul was seeing the, the Gentiles at the time. Not all of them. Just as all the Gentiles aren't being saved now, in my mind, we would compare it to, to China. Now, for a long time, we've thought of the, the people of, of China as being hostile, hard to the gospel. But now in, in recent years, we've seen astronomical growth in the Christian population there. Certainly not all of them are saved. The leadership of the country is, is still very hostile to the gospel. But that does not change what's happening on the, on the ground or, or in the underground. It's pretty amazing stuff. We're not saying that there will be that there will not be any hostility on the part of the Jews. What we are saying is that we'll not see that hostility that characterizes them as a nation like we are now. We'll see that barrier removed and, and many of them start coming to faith. So we just take the plain sense of the illustration. Not all individuals, not all, na not all nations, but the plain meaning is that Paul is speaking of a great number. After all, that's how he was spoken in the text up until this point. We've pointed that out over and over as we've gone through this. So let me give you several implications here or um, points to remember about the, the illustration, things that we can, we can grasp from this text. First, the first thing I want you to notice is that there is only one people of God. Often overlooked in this passage, for instance, dispensationalists are, are right, at least to some degree, when they see a, a future blessing for Israel in this passage. But where they are wrong is that they see that there are two peoples here, two nations, two groups. Israel is the people of God, and then the church is an apprentices in God's plan, and then God is going to go back and deal with his people again. But the church isn't really God's people, but they're, they're acting as God's people only because Israel rejected, and that really, I don't think, makes sense in the text. In the illustration, Abraham is the root of the tree And in this letter, he has been presented as the father of all who are saved. Not only the father of just national Jews. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. And Abraham's spiritual descendants then are children of faith, offsprings of faith. There is one people of God. Second, People of God must bear fruit. That's in the text. In this illustration, one must ask a simple question. What is the point of branches being grafted into a tree? Obviously, it's to bear fruit. Why would you cut branches off a tree? They're not bearing fruit. In this text, that's unbelief. And unbelief is the ultimate expression of fruitlessness. The point here is clear that those who have faith, Gentiles or Jews, are his people, and his people bear fruit. When I speak of fruit, 
We're speaking of growing in, in godliness. We're speaking of, of good works that are produced. The theological word is, is sanctification. And, and, and what we believe then is, is sanctification and justification both are gifts from God. Justification is by faith alone, and so is sanctification. If one is justified, they will be sanctified. And at the end of Romans 8, it makes this clear that God will take those who are predestined, he'll call them to faith, justify them, and ultimately grow them to the point in which they are glorified in heaven at the resurrection of Christ. My point is that sanctification and justification are tied together. You cannot have one who is justified by God and not being sanctified. Now, that might look different in every person. For some, it might be a snail's pace, so slow, in fact, that one almost can't discern any growth at all in periods of time. It might be something that's extremely frustrated to friends and family, but there will be growth. There will be fruit. That is the point. Those who are justified those who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ will produce fruit. They must. Third, Gentiles contribute nothing to salvation. You see this in the text. And, and this is where replacement theology has, is so dangerous because it says in, in essence that there is, is some merit in Gentile religion. It, it, there's some merit in their faith in Jesus Christ where the Jews failed and God has not chosen them and they chose the Messiah that they are superior in some way. But this is just contrary to the gospel. In the gospel, we all stand by faith alone. We all stand before God because of his grace alone. Notice the word wild in verse 24. It really shouldn't be overlooked. Apart from God's grace, we are wild in a sense. We've gone our own way, the scriptures tell us. We are wild. And in this illustration, it tells us that the Jews are not saved by becoming Gentiles, but that Gentiles are saved by becoming Jews, meaning that all are saved by becoming true spiritual children of Abraham. You become connected to the root when you're grafted in, right? That's the point. The root is Abraham. And that happens through faith in Jesus Christ. Fourth, it's worth pointing out that neither do the Jews Gentiles and Jews alike contribute nothing to the salvation process. Jesus said that salvation was from the Jews. Notice that that's very different than from saying that salvation is being Jewish. The word from is important. It's a channel, a way, a, a path, a road of salvation. It's being made through revelation that was given to the Jews. In God's dealing with Israel, of course, the Jews became beneficiaries of that revelation, but not by being Jews, but by trusting in God the same way that Gentiles do, believing in Jesus Christ. Notice 
that they're broken off because of unbelief. And if they do not persist in their unbelief, they will be grafted back in. It's clear that Jews contribute nothing to their salvation but are saved by God's grace alone. Just as Gentiles are. If you're unbelieving, yes, you were broken off. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you become connected to the root. Fifth, a fifth point of of application here of of truth in this illustration is that we should not boast. We have have no reason to boast. If you go back to verse 13, you see this pretty clear, that the point of this part of the letter is is written to the Jews. Paul Paul is talking to the Gentiles here. And then in verse 18, we read, do not be arrogant toward the branches, right? So he's talking to the Gentiles. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. In other words, the Gentiles were not to boast in their present favored position. We're connected to the root, you're not. We have something here. You don't. The rejection of the Jewish Messiah by Israel has been an occasion of Gentile blessing. And it is at this point that Paul reminds them, don't forget about the warnings in Scripture of boasting. We could say it this way. If you are boasting, you are not believing. Boasting is being proud of your own achievements. Believing is receiving what God has done for us in Christ. Or, one could say it this way, that the only ground for boasting that we have is not in anything concerning us, but what Christ has done on our behalf. In that sense, the message of the gospel is boasting, It is boasting in what Christ has done. But for us, we have no reason to boast. And here Paul says, don't don't boast. You're connected to the root, they're not. But you're you're not connected to the root because of anything about you. It's about grace. Six, another application from this illustration is that we should not presume on the favor of God. It goes along, it's tied to to not boasting, but I I think it should be spelled out a little bit on its own for here. For if one is boasting, they are presuming on God's favor, meaning that they're making an assumption that everything is right between ourselves and God, regardless of what we're believing or what we are doing, how we're living. Look at the end of verse 20. So do not become proud. Do not presume God's favor. Boyce says the only way that we can avoid presumption is to obey God and to pursue righteousness diligently. And then he goes on to say this. It's a great quote. If we are not following after Jesus Christ in faithful discipleship, we are not disciples. 
And if we're not disciples of Christ, we're not Christians. Don't presume God's favor. And of course, we saw this over and over, right? That, that, that people presume, Jesus dealt with this all the time, that, that the Jews always presumed God's favor because of their national identity. For the, the Gentiles here, it was, it was a matter of, of boasting. See, we're getting it. You're supposed to get it, but we get it. And there was this presumption that because now they were favored, now they see, recognized the, the Messiah, and they didn't. And here he's saying, don't, don't presume God's favor, but continue to believe, follow after him. Seven, keep your eyes there on verse 20. Do not be pr- proud and presume on God's favor, but what? Fear. Think about that for a moment and ask yourself, what is he saying? Is he saying that we should live in fear that we might be cut off? That one can never know if they're a Christian? Keep reading in verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, Jews, neither will he spare you, Gentiles. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen in unbelief, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. So please understand this, that there are many that should fear because they're assuming the kindness in favor of God. In fact, our our world preaches this all the time. God is the God of love. Act like Jesus would. Love like Jesus would. It's always about love, and we apply our definitions of what love is to God. God would never Think this toward another people group. God would never say things like this. But notice what's happening here. Note the kindness. Yes. Note note the love of God. Note that. But also notice the severity of God. I mean, there are, there are many people today that are resting in the fact that, that they prayed a prayer when they were 10 or, or whatever, that they were raised in church, that they've never missed a Sunday. They're assuming that God is good with them for one reason or another. Jews, it was because of their heritage. And here Paul is saying that you must continue to believe and rely on Jesus. The Christian life is a continual reliance on Jesus Christ, not a presumption of his favor because you ask Jesus into your heart. Are we proud of fear? Fear what? That you're not believing or continuing in his kindness? we're not believing, then we run the risk of being cut off. 
Isn't, isn't that the point? We often think that God is, is kind. God is love, but we hardly ever apply the word severity. Note then the kindness of God. But also take note of his, that he is severe. He wants them to see, Paul wants them to see the severity of God in that God deals with sin. He doesn't just overlook it. And in this case, the sin of unbelief. I can't think of anything worse than being cut off from Christ. Go, go back to the opening words of Romans chapter 9, if you would, and, and notice Paul's words there. He, he's speaking of his anguish for those who are, who are cut off from Christ for their unbelief. And he says this, I'm speaking the truth of Christ. I'm not lying. By conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow in unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen according to the flesh. I mean, we asked this when we went through this. How in the world was it that Paul could say this? Now Paul's talking about being cut off. He's using an illustration of, of cutting off branches so they're not tied to the root. I think Paul could say this because he understood what was at stake here. That the Jews' disbelief would be judged by a just God who deals justly with sin and that by their unbelief, they would be cut off from Christ. And Paul is saying, I get that. And I, and I would trade places with them if it meant their salvation. Because I don't want them to experience that. I know what it is to be connected to the root. I know what it is to, to have this. And I also know then a little bit of, of trying to imagine life being totally cut off from Jesus Christ. It's not something that you would wish on anyone. Paul certainly doesn't say, well, they, they deserve it. He understands what it is to be cut off. And if you really understand that, you really understand fear and respect in a, in a biblical way, you couldn't wish that on anyone. Paul says, I'd rather, I'd rather take their place. I wouldn't wish that anybody be cut off. Paul understood fear from a Christian perspective. That one couldn't be proud and, and boast in themselves, but that our, our salvation rests wholeheartedly on what Christ has done. In Paul's understanding of, of fear, of the respect of God, it, it leads him to care so deeply for those who are at the risk of being cut off for their unbelief that he even wishes to trade places with them because he knew what was at store for them if they did not believe. And he desperately 
did not want them to face that. Let me ask you this. How is it that we view those who are lost around us? Those who do not believe. Those that we care about. Those that we love, it's one thing. Those that we don't know, that's quite another. Paul's saying this about every Jewish person that he knows that does not believe. Do we have that attitude sometimes? They, they deserve it. If they're going to be condemned, they deserve it. Do we, do we presume ourselves while looking at others saying, you know, they deserve exactly what they're going to get? I think the message here is clear. We are people who aren't to boast. We're not to presume God's favor. We recognize that we, have, we contribute nothing to our salvation, that we are God's people precisely because he has lavished grace and mercy on us when we deserved none. And that we in turn recognize what he has done for us. We in turn recognize what it is to be connected to that root, that source of life. That we fear and respect this God in such a degree that we wouldn't want anyone to face eternity without him. So we rush to tell them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ saves sinners. That we, that you too can become a child of God by placing your faith and trust in him. And when you do that, you're grafted in and connected to the root. Source of life. And you start to bear fruit. Tremendous blessing. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.